0: Okay, we are back. Uh, we are here with Tom Loom. Uh, Tom is a host of Nerds for Humanity. Uh, we had just gotten through his first and top priority, which was restoring competency to the executive office. And we're now on to ta- talking about his second top priority, which is helping the working slash middle class. And Tom, I-, I think this is a pretty large and broad category. So when you talk about helping the working and middle class, What specifically are you getting at? What needs to be done to help them?
1: I think the main challenge we have is when you look at the American dream from the very earliest days, it was always marked by this sense of unlimited potential. And I remember, you know, as a son of immigrants, my dad would say, And my mom would say, um, you know, this is a country where you could go as high as you can dream as long as you work really hard and play by the rules. And this is just this like uh, magical place where it's a city upon a hill kind of thing. And I think that has been true for a long, long time. Um, Certainly, if you look at like the post World War II era. We uh, had a streak of just crushing it economically from an innovation point of view, from a standard of living point of view. But if you look at where we are today, it's a very different uh, environment where our international competition is fierce. I mean, I remember when anything that wasn't made in America was considered like third rate I don't know that you could say that today. Um, you you know, I remember when made in Japan was considered like really cheap and made in China was just like, well, if it's like a rubber dog toy, maybe that's fine. But, you know, now you fast forward some of the software innovation, artificial intelligence, kind of big data stuff that China is doing is some people would say comparable. Others would say ahead of where we are even in the US. Obviously the Germans are um, famous for their industrial kind of manufacturing capability. So I feel like the problem is that if you're a middle America working class person, you, 30 years ago in that situation, you were pretty confident your kids would be better off than you. Yeah. You were pretty confident that if you worked hard, you'd get a decent job, you'd, you'd have a car or two, you'd have a house, a backyard, you'd grill on the weekends and put your kid to college, and your kid would do better than you, and you get this belief that it would keep going, and every generation would be better off. And now I don't think that's – I think people know that's, that's less and less true. And the reason is that a lot of the work that you could do in the 50s, you know, might have been a great union job at the Ford plant or the carrier plant or the RCA plant or, you know, whatever. Back when we used to have, you know, even like uh, uh, build furniture and stuff in, in America. And those are all gone. There, they initially were competed out of uh, out of existence because of international competition from lower cost labor, but I think now it's even just going to automation, mm. and uh, you know there's even cases where Chinese are worried about losing jobs to Pakistanis and Vietnamese, and and those guys are going to lose their jobs to robots, right? And so what is the what's the I worry a lot about the middle America blue-collar working class because if they are uh, pissed and uh, they feel like this is just not fair and the system's rigged or just stacked against them, let's say, at some point you're going to have a social unrest and stability challenge and anyone who's on the lucky side of making it
0: you're 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 you're
1: only going to make it if the whole thing works, and if half of the population is just pissed and is saying "screw this," that's not in anyone's interest. So, in a way, uh, I'll just be honest. Like, knock on wood, you know, I've done okay uh, professionally, and you know, I've I've, I've uh, I have you know some decent decent resources available to me. But it doesn't matter if my kids are going to enter a country where it's chaos or where there's this massive kind of uh, income inequality, because at some point, and I wouldn't, I would not blame people. At some point, if you're if you're barely able to make pay your rent, and you're watching these guys drive around in their new Tesla, and having their, you know. 10 course tasting meals and skiing in in uh in the alps at some point you're gonna say no this is not gonna work for me and i and i would be like if i were them i would i would i would be very tempted to demand uh massive change
0: yeah i think that makes a lot of sense and i think it's not just borne out by a perception that we can easily maybe come to from social media showing these lives of grandeur when we don't have them ourselves. Statistically, we've seen that people in my parents' generation—you might—I think you're probably a little bit younger than them—had a ninety-three percent chance of being able to have a more prosperous life than yeah. their parents. Uh, in my generation, those built, uh, those born in the nineties, it's now a fifty-fifty chance, and so I think. It's absolutely true that this perception of leaving a better life for your kids is almost the heart of what the working in middle class existence is, is you work really hard in this life so that you can hopefully leave a better one for the next generation. I know that's what my parents had said. My grandparents were immigrants themselves, so I'm a second generation. But I, I personally believe that's a very strong sales pitch for why we also were, as you said, like the bastion of immigration, too, is because we mm-hmm. have this pitch that you can have a middle class life that was consistently improving. But now it feels like such just a race to the bottom in the pursuit of the bottom line. And so I wonder, there's clearly problems within the system. What do you think Mm -hmm. are some of those things that could help? I mean, obviously there's the universal basic income as we all knew from Yang supporting and Mm -hmm. we both have that commonality, but what are some other things that we can really do to help this working and middle class?
1: Well, I think as much as I've been doom and gloom, I think there is some good news, which is that if you look at history, whenever there's been uh, introduction of new technology and major innovations that have disrupted some industry. Generally, uh, the economy produces new industries that provide new opportunities for employment. And so I think in the long run, we may be okay. I think the bigger challenge is that doesn't happen overnight. And so what do you say to those people? Basically, an entire generation is going to get stuck in this transition point where, like, people say, like, oh, like, why are you so worried? Like, when we invented the car, uh, it's not like people, you know, all lost jobs who made, you know, buggies and took care of horses and everything like that. That's true. I would say that the introduction of the car happened fairly gradually compared to the introduction of automation and artificial intelligence into the economy now. And so there was a time for people to be like, oh, wow, I see this year there's a few more cars than last year. And then, wow, now it's like 10% of people have cars instead of horses. But that happened over a gradual period of time. We're talking about now where we might say, you know, this call center – We've got the AI good enough and the chatbots good enough that we could probably have maybe a third less uh, requirement of human labor this year than last year. And then two years from now, it might be half and blah, blah, blah. You know, maybe there will always be some small tier of human support. Uh, or people work in retail. I mean, you can see the number. I remember there was a time where there were cashiers all over the place at a grocery store. Mm-hmm. And there were people stocking shelves all the time. And there used to be a job when I was a young fella that where people were paid to like bag the grocery. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like a lot of jobs. Yeah. And I think, you know, now it's a kiosk and you bag yourself. And even if, sometimes you don't even go to the store. You just tap a few buttons on your phone and your groceries show up at your front door that's fine but um that means that a lot of people who used to be working aren't going to be working or they're going to have to learn completely new skills and so in order to take advantage of those new jobs they're going to have to learn new skills and here's the other dark secret even if they learn the new skills is that new industry going to hire like the 45 year old who has spent the last 25 years doing some old skill or they want to hire someone like you, Justin, you know, someone younger who's yeah. more up to date with the new stuff. So that, that there is. So my, my point is that um, we have to basically develop policies that help transition and retool. Um, and on the transition stuff, I think the most efficient is as, as someone who believes in the power of markets and the, the, economics, cash is one of the most efficient uh, containers of value, and it is highly adaptable to uh, everybody's individual needs. And so um, I do believe that UBI is a big part. But on top of that, I would say also having a national policy that is geared towards the jobs of tomorrow. And that is not the same as sending everyone to a four-year university to get a degree in sports marketing. Like, we don't need more sports marketing. And, you know, I feel bad, like, as a history and economics major, like, we probably don't need that many more historians and economists. Yeah. What we need are, we need welders, we need plumbers, we need roofers, we need uh, nurses, we need home care assistants, we need physician's assistance. Like There's a lot of jobs that we need, but our country does not seem, it's sort of like poo-poos those kind of trades and wants everyone to have a, a university degree, which I, I, I admire the the kind of spirit of it, and it's very intellectual, but it's also like an extremely expensive use of resources, and it's not clear that it's always a positive return on investment for the people that pursue that path. And right now we're a country where it's like, if you don't go to college, you're, you're a failure. And I think we need to get away from that, that whole ideology.
0: Yeah, I I strongly agree. I think we have to stop living in kind of like a a Vietnam war era where people push the idea of you got to go to college. Otherwise it's off to war with you. Uh, Mm. Because that was a large reason why there was such a huge push for people to go to college is because there was a very stark alternative to it. And so we kind of said, okay, well, now if you don't have a college degree, it's essentially like you're going off to war with poverty when that's not the case because there are clearly these skills that are needed that are not the traditional college skills are vocational training skills that are much more needed. And, and furthermore, to your point of how this kind of era is very different from past transitionary periods, back in the day from buggy to car, you're still gonna have the person who is building the buggy have the opportunity to now build a car. <laughs> So it wasn't like a complete removal of an individual from the labor force. It was training them into a new skill to fill that new job. But as you said here, this automation era is very different. It's it's labor replacing. And furthermore, it's not just manual labor replacing. It's now cognitive labor replacing in many cases. We do that a lot of the times in having documentation. All the people who would normally scan forms, now we can just do that with AI, as we've said. Um, And so I think it's a very different economy. And the one thing I would add to what you had said and really the the drivers is, unlike our past generations, there have been like a couple of very key inflations that have occurred within our economy that are really making it hard for someone in my generation to be able to have that same middle class life, whether it be education, uh, the cost of education, rapidly rising. And so Mm -hmm. when we send them off to get these degrees that maybe they shouldn't be getting anyway, they come out with tons of debt. So they can't really start a new business necessarily or get the maybe car they need to go get a job that they could get. Uh, There's a lot of different things there. You have it for healthcare, and you're going to have it also for housing. I know housing for this generation, I could not dream of owning a house currently. I am going to be in the rental market till I die. And for that point, that means I will never build up equity. I can't. It's an expense. I'm not actually Mm. gaining anything from my housing other than continual living. Um, And so back in the day, I know my parents, they got a nice, lovely home. Uh, And that means that you could actually own a piece of property. It means you could potentially use it as collateral if you need to be able to start a business. There's a lot of things you can do once you actually have this ability to build up equity because you could just even afford the down payment for a house. And so I I, I totally respect that UBI is, is a very good transitionary vehicle because at the end of the day, people are going to know what they need. And I think Mm -hmm. not everyone's going to want to go into the vocational path, even if we need it. And so some will want to go to college, and they can use the UBI for that. And some will say, I want to go neither, and I want to start my own business. Mm -hmm. That's perfectly fine, too. But I'm curious to hear what you would have for a lot of these cost points. Because I think a lot of people are saying, you know what, our income is higher. But the cost just went up much higher than that.
1: Yeah, so in terms of the high costs of um, real estate, uh, education, and healthcare, care, uh, let's talk about each of them one by one. So with education, I think part of this is the high cost of education is partly our own fault as a society because we all believe that every – our kids have to go to college. Mm-hmm. And so there's this artificial kind of demand for something that, it's like if everybody thought they had to, uh, you know, have a, a, a Tesla and they th- you, you, if you don't have a Tesla, you're a freaking failure. Well, then I bet you Tesla prices would be pretty high. And I think part of the challenge is also that the way our education system works is that there's this very um, finite supply of the quote unquote best quality. In fact, part of the quality of the ed- higher education product is, by definition, the fact that it's really hard to get. So nobody wants to tell you that their kid got into a school that had a 70% acceptance rate. They really want to tell you that, you know, little Johnny. Got into such-and-such university and they only have a 6% acceptance rate Mm. and you know It just kind of conveys this sense of elite value. Yeah, and so I think the combination of us all Thinking our kids have to go to university and then us uh, That there being a finite supply of these seats uh, and there really isn't true competition you know, these these elite universities, they're almost, uh, first of all, they are amazing places. I, I'll acknowledge that. And they have incredibly smart people. But there is a component of it where it's more similar to uh, fashion brands. Like, isn't Hermes purse mm-hmm. really that much better I than, totally uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know, Nine West purse? No, man. It's just freaking bag. But people will pay more for it. A lot more for that Air bag.
0: and similarly, they're going to pay a lot more
1: for that Stanford degree, uh, or you know, in the news, like a, even a USC degree. Right? Uh, they'll pay enormous amounts of money for these things. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, I think part of the problem with higher education is if we force everyone to to think that they have to go and they have to go to this small number of schools or the four-year program that's really hard to get into. That's a problem. The other one is like massive government subsidies of higher education. So this is why where I disagree with, with uh, Bernie on free college for everyone because I'm like, oh no, this is only going to make it worse. If everybody gets free college government money and go to college, now these colleges have even less incentive. To be more efficient, and they're just going to keep jacking up the prices. Yeah,
0: it just transfers it to the ledger of the public. Yeah, like this is – so I'm not
1: a big fan of that. And then um, I think lastly on the education cost thing, people aren't really presented with clear alternatives. Like when we say trade school, like I almost wonder why we don't invest in like really outstanding trade schools where you're like, I am a master roofer. I am a master electrician, a master plumber. You know, I am a black belt. You know,
0: nurse. Like I am the like, Add a little elitism case. to these fields that we need people to go more to. Yeah,
1: because like I live in, uh, I've been living in Europe for the last few years, and one of the things I've noticed in Switzerland is that only ten percent go on to university. Ninety percent of the high school students uh, pursue trades. Uh, not ninety percent. Ten percent go to university. And I think like forty or fifty percent like go to official trade schools or something like that. Maybe something like fifty percent. And it's totally respected. It's and th- they make great money. They can take care of their family. And there's no like, you know, a funny thing is like when you whenever I go back to the states, and I see the back of cars with the college stickers and stuff, and I'm like, this, this is this freaking rat race that we're in and it's putting all this anxiety like because i visit the bay area a lot and there's a lot of people whose kids are like literally committing suicide because you know they got waitlisted at stanford it's like dude life will go on like stanford's a beautiful campus but it's just a it's it's just a bunch of rooms (laughs) where you where you (laughs) listen to lectures it's not oh yeah you know it's not the end of the world um so, so that's education, and I'll quickly go to healthcare and real estate. Just two quick points, because I know we're we're I've been talking for a long time. So, on healthcare, God help us. Like we, um, obviously, we have a system where there's not enough competition. Obviously, we have a system where we are paying more for our. Drugs and our services than other countries, which we think are inferior to us. So I don't know like If you told me I could go to a restaurant and pay twice as much for worse food I would not call that (laughs) restaurant the best restaurant in the world, right? So That's just nuts and I know we kinda like I I have these debates with my uh, Maga family and they're always like oh, but we have the best care in the world like they have this image of the rest of the world's healthcare being like East Germany 1960. And it's like, dude, (laughs) I don't see a lot of French and Italians and Germans like dying because they don't have healthcare. I see that in America and we need to do better. Like you can love America and want us to be way better. And just because you're pointing out areas where we can improve, some people will say, wow, well, love it or leave it. It's like, what, what, how are we supposed to solve problems if every response to an opportunity improvement is love it or leave it? Like, can you imagine being at a company where you said, hey, boss, I think we can do our marketing more efficiently or our production more efficiently? And he said, no, you love it or leave it, man. You'd be like, what the hell is this? This is strange. So I think for our healthcare, we need to radically uh, revisit all of our key assumptions. I'll leave it at that. I don't know if that single-payer could be. Um, Third, on the real estate stuff, I also think, much like university, uh, owning a house has become also so aligned with success. And we have a tax code that clearly provides massive incentives for you to try to own, so you have, like, these interest rate tax deductions, that – you result in a lot of Americans being house, you know, sort of um, house rich and but poor kind of thing, like all of their their wealth is tied up in in um, not only in real estate, but in the hope that that real estate market has to constantly go up. So in that case, I would say like renting can often be very efficient, especially if you can build up equity in other ways like investing in public markets or, um, you know, uh, other forms of asset growth. So I, I, I think in summary, all those three high inflationary areas you mentioned, they all are rooted in a 1950s way of looking
0: at the world and defining success. And we're in 2020. I think that's pretty aptly said. I think before we go on to your last second, I just wanted to add a couple of points to mm. that. I, I think one of the things for education that needs to also be pointed out is it's not just the demand factor. It's also the supply p- factor of funds. So when you think about it, uh, states, I think it was from 2009 after the crash to I think it was 2018. It might have been 2017 had something around like a $9 billion cut in funding from state levels to their public colleges and so what this means is instead of basically pooling this cost as a state you are now saying we are going to ramp up the tuition cost that you need to pay to come here instead because we're not subsidizing it as much and so this has led to more of the cost falling on the individual and furthermore it gets compounded when we make federal loans just super readily available to everyone. Um, Mm. It doesn't matter what you're pursuing, what your ability to pay it back is. uh, It doesn't matter if you have a payment plan on it because it usually doesn't because you can't even uh, declare bankruptcy on it if you'd like to. Um, We have basically gutted the funding out of a lot of these colleges too. So I think it is like a twofold problem is we're not funding the universities in the first place well enough. We are ramping up administration costs at these universities Because so often, as you said, for branding, I know uh, many of the public colleges around where I went, not mine specifically, how much money was going towards athletics? Like Mm. most of those athletes are not going to go and become professional athletes anyway. Uh, A lot of the times the teachers are being cut in their pay, but the football programs are sacred. Um, So I think there's a lot of these Wrong priorities at universities themselves as well and the the last thing I would say for healthcare um, before we move on is that it's also a factor of we're subsidizing the rest of the world we're not allowed to negotiate our own prices but we're funding so much of the research that's going into these uh, medicines that are then getting uh, used by the rest of the world as well and so I think we need to start actually taking back some of that value that we're subsidizing and just say, kind of to your next point, let's stop having this corporate stranglehold saying we can't negotiate with ourselves. It's kind of mind-blowing that we're the only like major industrialized con- country that doesn't have universal healthcare and that won't even negotiate its own drug prices um, and then won't even allow the importation of drugs from other countries. There's no competition there. And so I, I agree, we need to both provide a means of transition through a universal basic income, as well as really handle these key inflation points. Um, but let's, let's take a quick break. Uh, Rosebud's out there. We're going to come back and talk to Tom about why this is all happening, because <laughs> campaign finance reform is a really important subject. So stick around. We'll be back soon.